It was to be a private visit, which was wonderful because Prince Charles could relax. The only media present was an official RAF photographer. So we welcomed him and, you know, the day went on. He's a very fine pilot. He did most of the flying and he, he latched on to aerotowing very quickly. And I even had him flying aerobatics. Welcome to Soaring the Sky Glider Pilots Podcast. My name is Chuck. I'm your host coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. Hard to believe this is episode 85. We have a very special guest with us today, but before we chat with him, if you haven't already, please go ahead and hit the subscribe button. If you really want to help grow the podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. A big thank you to our newest Patreon pilot, Stephen Wolf. Thank you for contributing to the podcast. Greatly appreciated. And thank you to all of our Patreon pilots who continue to support the podcast. If you want to support us financially, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash sky. And we do have some benefits for those of you that want to do that. If you don't want to use Patreon, but you still want to help the show out, you can go to our website and hit the Support the Show button where you will see other options while you're there at the website. Please sign up for our newsletter as well. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization located in the high desert of Los Angeles, California. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.com. Honored to have George Lee, MBE, with us on the podcast today. George was born in Dublin in 1945, joined the Royal Air Force in 1962 as a technical apprentice. He then became a pilot and flew primarily the F-4 Phantom. He joined Cathay Pacific Airways in 1984, where he flew 747s for 15 years before retiring to Australia. George started gliding in 1963 became an instructor, and gained all three diamonds, started contest flying in 1970, and flew in five world championships, all open class, winning the first three in Finland, France, and Germany, being the first person in history to win three consecutive world titles. He also flew in the Smirnoff Derby in 1977, and flew in two Hitachi Masters in Arizona and Florida. George instructed Prince Charles for his first and only flights in a glider, received numerous awards including the Lithenthal Medal, the Royal Aero Club Gold Medal, the Britannia Trophy, and the Air League Founders Medal. George ran advanced coaching courses for primarily experienced junior pilots in Australia, the students coming from Australia, the United Kingdom, the USA, Austria, and South Africa. Later on the podcast, Dale Masters joins us to bring us another soaring tale with Dale. This one's called Ballad from Button Bay. We then hear from Glider Pilot, Powered Pilot, and YouTuber Pilot Bambi for our soaring safety segment. And to finish up the podcast today, we head to sunny Florida for our tips and techniques segment to talk with Bruce Patton. All this and more now on episode 85 of Soaring the Sky. George Lee, welcome to Soaring the Sky. I'm excited to have you here today and talk to you. How are you? Oh, very good. Thanks, Chuck. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. We're, we're a long way apart physically, but uh, yep, it's good to be able to talk to you from sunny Queensland in Australia. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, summer, right? It sure is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how did your aviation story begin? Well, I guess it's it's... Yeah, a fairly long story, Chuck, uh, but I'll try and be brief. I, I was born in Ireland, uh, the south side of Dublin Bay, and I grew up uh, there by the sea, and my hobby at that time uh, was sea fishing. And I used to spend many long hours digging bait for all my sea fishing, and I do recall vividly when I was taking breaks from the backbreaking digging uh, to see 
seabirds soaring along a local pier wall, which was very close by. And when the wind was right, the, the, the birds would just be going up and down this pier endlessly, never flapping wings, never losing height. And I found that to be absolutely fascinating. I had no aviation connection through family or friends in any way, shape or form, but the seed somehow was sown in to me, maybe from, from those observations, I don't know. Anyway, a friend of mine was joining the British Royal Air Force and I read what information he had and I saw that it was possible to become commissioned, I, that is become an officer at the end of three year technical apprentice training. So I went along with it and I had to fly up to Belfast in Northern Ireland for a, a Royal Air Force recruiting office because as you can imagine, might imagine there's, there wouldn't be any of those in the Republic of Ireland. So my uncle took me up to Belfast. That was the first ever flight I had in my life and that was in an F-27 uh, Fokker friendship. And I, I vividly remember as the aircraft broke free from the runway, just the feel of the air and the flex of the wings. And uh, I, I was just so excited, even just experiencing that, it was absolutely tremendous. Then when I got to the technical apprenticeship training school, I discovered that out of 160 apprentices, only a couple would be selected for uh, commissioning. And because I'm not very strong technically, uh, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be one of those two. So there was a bit of a problem. And I thought, what on earth am I going to do? I want to become a pilot. I couldn't have picked a harder way, perhaps. So then I got to hear about the Royal Air Force Gliding and Soaring Association Centre at a place called Bicester near Oxford. And there was a group of apprentices that went over there to do to do gliding every pretty well every weekend. So I decided to go along and yeah, join in and show motivation towards flying. And as always, for any pilot in gliding or soaring, the very first flight is a very special, special moment. And that flight was really, I suppose, fairly mundane by any standards, but it was just so exciting for me. It was only about a three minute circuit in light rain in a in a side by side basic uh, trainer, the old vintage Sedberg T21. But in spite of all of that, I was absolutely hooked and wrapped by gliding. And, and I knew that whatever was going to happen professionally, I would stay with gliding. And that that's really where it started, Chuck. And it went on from there as I went up through gliding and on, on finally into parrot flying. But your question was about how it began. So yeah, that, that, that was how it all began. What did you most enjoy about soaring that you didn't find in powered? Well, as one progresses, of course, the challenges become greater and the rewards and the satisfaction equally become greater, I believe. But down at a basic level, soaring is a very, very special activity. And powered flying, light aircraft flying never really attracted me that much, to be perfectly honest. Uh, soaring is just so special. The, you're up there relying on the forces of nature. You're feeling, feeling the air, analyzing the conditions. If there are cumulus clouds, of course, analyzing the sky ahead. And the challenges are just ongoing. Of course, soar, soaring is fundamentally or ultimately rather all about cross-country flying. And yes, the further you get into that, the further... The, the longer the distances you fly, the higher the performance of the aircraft and so on. The, the challenges and rewards just keep coming. And you're, you're always learning. I know you can say that about flying in general, and I think that's true. But in gliding, yeah, one, one is constantly learning. I mean, I have now retired from soaring, but in the 53, 54 years that I was involved with it, yeah, you just never stop learning because no two flights are the same. What has been one of the scariest flights in the glider that maybe you came out of it and it made you a better and safer pilot? Well, that's an interesting question. I guess there's been lots of slightly whoops moments, but uh, I, I, I guess one that does come to mind is the U in the UK, Glider pilots were, and indeed, as far as I am aware, still are, uh, 
actually, actually legally allowed to fly in cloud, which is a very satisfying and rewarding activity. I absolutely loved it. But it was also actually allowed in, in contest flying, competition flying. And I do remember one occasion when I went up inside this cloud, I was in the cloud for quite a long time. Finally, when I was going wings level, wanting to get out of it and carrying on on, on course, bear in mind, this is in a competition, so there are many other gliders. There was a dedicated cloud flying frequency where you broadcast your, your position and your height. But of course, when you're in cloud for a long time and the wind is moving you along as well and your position is changing and you have no visual references, and this was before the arrival of GPS, of course, so it really was dead reckoning. As I tried to come out of this cloud, the, the cloud had actually developed around me much more than I realized and had anticipated. So I was in cloud for quite a long time. And you're trying to do mental dead reckoning and broadcast, broadcast where you think you are very conscious of the fact that, yeah, there, there are a lot of other gliders who may well be a lot closer than you would like. And finally, finally, the relief when you break out of cloud and uh, carry on with the flight. So that wasn't exactly a relaxing experience, but yeah, all came out, all came out of it well. Um, historically, just as a matter of interest, there had, act had actually been the odd mid-air collision in cloud so in, in, during contests. So it's a fairly, it's, it has its hazards, that for sure. But cloud flying itself was a privilege and a wonderful, wonderful uh, experiences overall. And there's only a, a very small number of countries in the world that still legally allow that to take place. Now, I'm sure you've had some land outs, you've done a lot of soaring, but what would, maybe was your most interesting land out that you've ever experienced? Interesting. Well, yes, some are more interesting than others. I, I guess from a point of view of interesting, there are two that come to mind, one in a positive sense and one in a negative sense. Uh, I'll take the negative one first, and that was during a, a British Nationals um, that I was flying. I was flying in the ASW-17, and the weather just went bad, as it often can do in, in the UK, and I ended up landing out. And the farmer, I'm even to this day, I'm not quite sure whether he was just sick to the back teeth of having gliders and balloons landing on his on his farm, but his manner and everything, shall we say, was somewhat less than friendly. And he actually, he actually locked me in with the glider and was, was demanding a landing fee uh, of, of a reasonable amount. And I guess I just dug my heels in and you know, refused to pay a landing fee. Could see no reason why I should pay a landing fee. There was no damage to his property at all. But he was very insistent and he wasn't budging an inch. And finally, my retrieve crew came along and we, we just had this complete impasse. And then just, to, just to, to, to rub the situation in a little bit more, it actually started raining. And I thought, oh, this is it. I, I, I have no cards to play here whatsoever. I don't want to leave the glider here in the field. Uh, that, that's for sure. So we ended up yeah, forking out the landing fee. And of course, when I got back, I let the contest organization know that this had taken place. And they put a red circle around this, this farmer's property so that uh, everybody else could avoid it for the remainder of the contest. So I guess in the negative sense, that, that was the one that comes to mind. But in, the po in a positive sense one, when I was flying in the World Championships down here in Australia, from a place called Benella, that was in 1987. I was flying an ASW-22. And one of the early days, <clears throat> they set a long task and the weather really wasn't quite up to it. So pretty well everybody landed out from memory. And I landed in this farmer's field and the farmer came over and after that, his wife and other family members and it was just absolutely wonderful experience because they were just so friendly. 
they brought me back to the farmhouse. They'd had their evening meal, but nothing would do the wife. Then she had to bring out the, the roast beef again. And I, I had to have my evening meal. And eventually the crew arrived. And sure enough, she offered them an evening meal. And by now it was approaching midnight and I needed to get home to get to bed. But no, it, it, it was a fabulous experience. And actually maintain contact with them and invited them to come down to Vanilla to see uh, the, the, spend the day there, watch the launch and see the gliders coming back at the end of the day. And that contact was maintained over many years. And I was glad to be able to reciprocate some hospitality when they were transiting through Hong Kong on their way to Europe. And I was in Hong Kong at that time flying for Cathay Pacific. So, yeah, I was able to show them around Hong Kong and give them dinner out and all that sort of stuff. So that, that, that was very special. And that contact just kept on, albeit on a Christmas card letter basis for many years afterwards. Very special. Fed you and fed everyone else. That's, that's amazing. Now, you've had some interesting guests in the cockpit. Can you tell me about one interesting guest that we had talked about earlier before we started recording this? Yeah, sure, Chuck. Yeah, this was, of course, very special. Uh, that particular guest being no less than uh, Prince Charles. Uh, the whole plan was to for me to fly with Prince Charles in a twin steer, an RAF gliding uh, aircraft. And we were going to do a 100-kilometer tri triangle uh, from Bicester, the place where I started my gliding. So this flight was going to take place in... Uh, 1978, middle of 1978, and it was all set up. The the tow plane, the chipmunk was gone over with a fine tooth comb and quarantined in the corner of the hangar. Nobody to roped off, nobody to go near it, and the glider similarly. But then the day arrived, and it was to be a private visit, which was wonderful because Prince Charles could relax. The only media present was an official RAF photographer. Otherwise, yes, it was him, his private detective, and they arrived in, in the Prince's open top Aston Martin with the Prince driving and the private detective relaxing on the back seat. So we welcomed him and, you know, the day went on. But the weather just was not there for to accomplish the primary mission, and that is to take him cross country, unfortunately. The, the weather really, really wasn't. It was dry, but it, it wasn't properly soarable at all. During the day, I did manage to get one thermal from fairly low altitude, and you know we took that up to 3,000 feet. So at least it got a little taste of what, what it could be about. But overall, the weather was most certainly frustrating because I would have loved to have taken him cross-country. You asked about landouts. I, I often thought after that day, if we had gone cross-country and landed out, that would have been quite interesting when people came over and... So HRH and <laughs> yeah, would have been very interesting. But I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the day. We did. Uh, he, he's a very fine pilot. He did most of the flying. And he, he latched onto aero towing very quickly, and I even had him flying aerobatics. And uh, he, he's also, yeah, he's a much misunderstood man. He's actually a really, really nice guy with a very good sense of humour. I remember one particular moment during the day when we were having our lunch break. We were going in to, to have that in, in what was normally uh, the gliding center briefing planning room. And it was all decked out with the finest silverware and white linen tablecloth, all of this. And I got to the doorway and I invited him to go ahead of me, of course. And he, he went in, had a quick look around, and he turned around to me and said... Uh, I suppose it's always like this. Now <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it, it was a great day, uh, and uh, but yeah, just just somewhat frustrating that I couldn't show him what gliding was ultimately all about. How did you find out that you were going to be giving him a guest ride? I mean, how did that how did that go? Oh, I, I from memory, uh, one of the very senior Air Force officers who was overseeing the whole of the RAF Gliding Association activities. He communicated with me, and um, I, of course, I was very happy to, very happy to oblige. Uh, that was just before 
the World Gliding Championships in France. But there was an interesting spin-off from that day because I was with I was with my squadron, my Royal Air Force squadron, flying the Phantom out in Cyprus, and a telegram came through from the palace. They were actually inviting me to a small lunch at the palace. From, yeah, basically as a thank you, of course, for doing the flying and instructing uh, for Prince Charles. So I went from Cyprus over back to London to the palace for that. And there were, there were only, uh, from memory, eight or ten of us there at that quite intimate lunch, which was, uh, which was hosted by the Queen and uh, Prince Philip. So that, that was a very special occasion. Unfortunately, my wife uh, was not able to accompany me, but yeah, that, that was a, an unexpected and very special bonus, if you will. Oh yeah, that had to have been amazing. And now a word about our recently added new sponsor, Just Soaring. These guys are doing an all-new glider simulator cockpit for you Condor pilots out there that I think you're really going to be excited about. This sim rig was designed from the ground up with glider flight controls like flaps that have multi-position detents, a spring-loaded spoiler mechanism, landing gear lever, and flight controls laid out where you expect them to be in your cockpit. Built with super strong 8020 T-slot aluminum, which will not only hold up well, but will also allow for accessorization and customization over time. Designed by Glider Pilots for Glider Pilots, their mission is to design, engineer, and globally distribute a truly best-in-class, very affordable performance glider sim cockpit. They plan to start taking pre-orders sometime in the next couple months, and they are looking at first shipments to be in spring of 2021. And yes, while they are a U.S. company, they plan to have warehousing in Europe to support that market as well. If you are thinking about upgrading your Condor cockpit, you might want to check these guys out first at JustSoaring.com or at Just.Soaring on Instagram. You can reach out to them via their website with any questions. And thanks again to Just Soaring for supporting the show. If you'd like to be a sponsor or know someone that might, please drop us a line. What is your favorite glider that you've ever flown and, and why would it be your favorite? Oh, I, I think I would have to say the ASW-17. There were only 55 of them built, I believe. You know, the first flight was in 1971, but it was just... Uh, I've always liked flying open class, the big wings, and the ASW-17, I just felt at home in straight away. Very, very comfortable cockpit, very stable aircraft in flight, and the most beautiful handling. It's many, many years since I've flown one, and the last time I flew one was in New Zealand, and in turn, uh, that had been many, many years since I'd flown one before that. But... So even so, I got back into that cockpit in New Zealand and it, it was all just so familiar and so comfortable, just feeling so much at home. Superb handling, visibility from the cockpit, not the very best. That was a little bit of a negative, I guess, in, in that before GPS arrived and we we're taking photographs of turning points, you had to do sort of little S turns as, as you approached the overhead to make sure that you're positioning yourself accurately and that you didn't fly unnecessarily far or that you you know run the risk of turning short so the visibility out of the cockpit yeah a little bit a little bit constrained but overall a most magnificent machine not the easiest uh, or quickest aircraft to rig because of those large uh, heavy inner wing panels i believe dick johnson measured them at 220 pounds each so they were they were fairly heavy but I, I, I just love I, I just love the glider. I, I did many, many, many hours in it, and I've, I've flown many different types. But I would have to say the the seventeen was the one that captured my heart. Well, you mentioned New Zealand, so that kind of brings me to my next question. And what are some of your favorite places you've ever flown gliders? Well, I've been privileged to fly in a number of different countries. Uh, I've never flown in South South America, but. Um, I have flown a number of different countries in different terrain, different conditions, and so on. New Zealand, I've only done a certain amount of flying over there, and the terrain is certainly beautiful, spectacular, absolutely. I've also done a little bit of flying in Colorado. Um, but I, I guess 
place areas and places I would be even more familiar with in answer to your question. So they become favorite in that sense. One would would have to be a little place called Aboyne, which is in Scotland, west of Aberdeen. And interestingly, we were talking about the royal family. Aboyne is not all that far from Balmoral, uh, where the Queen and Prince Philip spend quite a lot of their time. But Aboyne is a very special place. It's, it's, not, it, it's a relatively small field, small narrow strip down in the valley by a river but it's an excellent wave site, uh, really superb. The mountains in Scotland are not particularly high, uh, but I managed to get my diamond height in wave out of a boy. And in fact, I got it twice and got up to around about 28, 29,000 feet. But the remarkable thing about a boy, apart from the beautiful scenery, you know, Scottish scenery from the air is indeed special, if not super dramatic. But it's the reliability of the wave. I, I was astonished the first week I flew from there because it didn't seem to matter from which direction the wind blew. There was, it was a fair chance there was going to be some wave. Uh, quite, quite remarkable. Uh, and the other places, yeah, really down here where I am now, Chuck, my pipe dream when I retired from, from flying, I left Cathay Pacific when I was where I was flying 747s for 15 years. And I had this, I had this pipe dream of setting up a gliding, a mini gliding center myself and doing advanced coaching for experienced junior pilots. And the area that we, uh, a friend of mine down here in Australia and, uh, and I identified, and I'm still living in that area, is called the Darling Downs. It's about two and a half hours inland from Brisbane and the soaring here is very good. It's not record-breaking conditions, but in terms of the amount of soaring and indeed much of it quality, high quality uh, over much of the year, and that includes our winter, is quite remarkable. And having spent so many years flying here and doing these courses, I, I, I just love, I love the flying. There's, although it's fl basically flatland soaring, the thermal, the quality of the thermal soaring is very good and many, many wonderful flights. Although I've not flown a thousand kilometers here on the downs, the day is just a little bit too short because we're actually at a subtropical latitude. So you, know, you have to go down south, further, further down south in Australia to get the longer days. And I have done a thousand kilometer flight, but from way, way down south. But here, certainly many uh, 750 kilometers flights that's on, on a decent day that's no problem at all uh, the furthest i've gone is 800 from memory so I, I would say very different areas but those those two areas would probably overall be my favorite places well it sounds like you do a lot of thermal soaring down there but what has been some of your favorite type of lift oh i would say yes i i Okay, we've got thermals, we've got ridge, we've got wave, but I would have to say overall thermals. Wave is is spectacular on, on a really on a really big wave day. Of course, you can get to such amazing altitudes, and the lift is just so silky smooth. So that's that is an incredible experience. I've done very little wave cross country, very very little indeed. So I'm not qualified to speak on that, other than to comment that astonishing achievements have been done in wave cross country of course mostly in south america off the andes but um, also even in scotland uh, a guy called john williams has done uh, has done still is doing extraordinary wave cross country flying over scotland uh, rich soaring yes i've done a fair bit of that i was stationed with the royal air force in scotland for five years and the thermal, uh, the thermals up there are not very good. It's just too far north. But I, I did quite a bit of ridge and wave soaring, albeit neither of them involving cross-country flying. So ridge soaring, it's got its own application. I mean, historically, uh, I guess the, the legendary figure for ridge soaring in your country would, of course, be Carl Striedek, who did astonishing things on the ridges over there. But for me, yeah, thermals. 
I like just using using the the life in them, how the thermal might change as you go up, picking them up from low level, the different characteristics of thermals from very narrow, tight and strong, where you really have to be very aggressive in terms of angle of bank and keeping speed up and all the rest of it to the late afternoon, higher altitude, very gentle, but still strong lift where you can just ease the bank off, bring the speed back and very, very gently go right up to cloud base. And then of course, en route, all the challenges of linking the energy, trying to spend minimum time actually circling, lining up the, the lines of lift and trying to optimize all of that. So for me, yeah, I would have to say thermals. You are a writer and you've had some, you've already told us some amazing stories, things you've done in your life and places you've flown. But now you've written an autobiography called Hold Fast to Your Dreams. Can you tell me about that? Yes, I have, Chuck. That's, that's going back, um, golly, just about eight years, eight, eight years ago, I guess now. Um, I'd just like to share the story about how I came to that, how I came to that title. I was actually invited to speak at a girls' secondary school down in the south of England. And uh, I, I, I appeared in Royal Air Force uniform. Why not? <laughs> anyway, after it, I was being escorted out. And I, I came through this room and I spied a picture on the wall. And it showed a, a, a seagull in flight. And of course, my attention was drawn to it. And I just wandered over and I had a quick, had a quick look at it. And there was a there was a small quotation actually on the picture. Uh, this had been written by a, a black American poet called Langston Hughes, I believe, from memory. And the quotation read, "Hold fast to your dreams, because if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly." And that grabbed hold of me, and I, I, I remember that ever since. So when the time came to write my autobiography, I thought, yep, that's got to be the title. So that's how it came about, and I've managed to get a publisher through a friend through our church. Well, she was visiting the church, actually, and she was a fairly prolific author. She advised me to write my book, but then I said, well, what about a publisher? And she said, well, I'll introduce you to mine, and it sort of went from there. So, yeah, that, that's about the size of it, Chuck. Um, hold fast to your dreams. Now, if we want to get a copy of that, where can we go? Well, as far as I know, Amazon has copies. I don't know, it, I don't know about Amazon in the U.S. I'm not quite sure about that. But Amazon in U.K., I believe, does have. Um, of course, I've got copies here at home. But, I mean, postage is always a bit of a, a bit of a deterrent, I guess. Um, but Amazon Amazon would be the place to start. Otherwise, yeah, whatever bookshops and um, just see how that works out. And do you have a website? I can put a link on the show notes. Yes, I did generate my own website. It's, it's actually holdfasttodreams.com. Okay. So when I, when I sent that over as a title to the publisher, he immediately inserted the word your <laughs> for the book. But the, but the website remains uh, holdfasttodreams.com. Okay, I'll put a link there in the show notes as well. Do you fly any soaring simulators like Condor? And if so, how has it helped you? Very little, Chuck. I, I guess I came from um, an era where, you know, obviously that, that just wasn't available at that time. It didn't feature. But even in later years, I've done very, very little indeed, and I'm, I'm not really qualified to make much comment on it. I gather from fairly experienced pilots that it is actually quite helpful. That's just hearing from other people, so I don't have the personal experience. But I think gliding simulators are definitely improving. And talking to people in the UK, fairly large clubs, they're finding that before they get into the, into the training itself, that spending quite a lot of time in the simulator has definitely helped people. Uh, the little bit of simulator flying I've done myself, I can see the advantages. I wasn't too sure about the fidelity of the handling, the, the accuracy of the representation of the 
particular type that was dialed in to the machine. Uh, but overall, yes, I, I, I can see it. It's got to be a good way ahead. And it's certainly a lot, you know, young people are fairly financially strapped, aren't they? They don't have a lot of spare cash very often. We want to encourage youth to come into our wonderful sport. So simulator flying has got to be a fairly good ha a good card to have in the hand, I think, because it would involve clearly less financial outlay for the student. What else do you think the soaring community can do to bring more people into this amazing sport? Oh, it's a tough one, Chuck. It's it's every every country that uh, has a significant soaring movement has faced this particular dilemma. It it it, it isn't easy. I but I've just mentioned young people, and I think to try and make maybe approach uh, maybe approach high schools and try and get the opportunity to give engaging presentations, being careful to select the person who's giving the presentation, because if that person is experienced, but above all else, passionate, I think that's critical because I strongly believe that passion is contagious. Uh, I really do. So maybe we need to be a little more front foot forward on this one and actually make approaches to large high schools. That's one thought, certainly. And I think also any possibility of getting a media interview needs to be grabbed, be it local or be it higher, higher profile than that, especially if there are any unusual or unusual events going on where, you know, in, in your case, Chuck, that you know, American pilots have done well. And of course, especially if there's been significant success at world championship level, so I think every that, that that needs to be maybe pushed quite hard, and I think many many people are interested in aviation. I think the, the, the majority of people are interested in aviation, and are hungry to know more about it. So I just think we need to be yeah a little more a little more pushing it out there. And I know down here in Australia, my local club has from time to time taken a glider to a large shopping center and in the middle open area they've actually rigged the glider and they the, the amount of interest shown and you know put children youngsters into the cockpit it has just been amazing absolutely amazing and i think it's produced dividends and fruit for them in terms of people being sufficiently interested to want to give it a try and then like me and I guess like you, Chuck, when you have your first flight and that bug bites, you know, you've got them, you know, you really do. And what happens downstream is another matter, but we're talking about um, to actually bring them in in the first place. Those would be my thoughts. Yeah, some good ideas for sure. And, and there are some clubs already going into the high schools here in the United States, and it's it's working out pretty good. Um, the Soaring Academy course in California good. in the LA area, they go into high schools, part of the STEM program. Good. Yeah. And so that's been, that's been doing well, but yeah, those are some great ideas. I love the idea of taking a glider into a shopping mall, you know, you're shopping and all of a sudden there's an aircraft sitting there. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's kind of grabbed your attention. <laughs> it really does. Yes. I mean, it's got to be, got to be carefully roped off and controlled, but I, I think handled properly. It's, it's, it, it's worked well, Chuck. I believe so. Apart from your world champion flying, what has been your most memorable event? Oh, I, I have no hesitation in answering that one. It would have to be uh, the Smirnoff Derby. I've flown in other events like the Hitachi Masters over in America. I've done that twice. Uh, the Baron Hilton uh, experience was phenomenal for all sorts of reasons. Uh, but overall, the one that really stands out from a gliding point of view, would have to be the Smirnoff Derby. That was in 1977. I won my first world championships the year before in 76 in Finland. And I was invited to take part in that Smirnoff Derby. And there were only, well, from memory, five of us all together. George Moffat flew on it, Al Leffler, Wally Scott, Ingo Renner and myself. And it, it was just amazing. I had never been to America before. And this, of course, is pre-GPS. And we would all get together at the same altitude and the, and the designated leader would give a countdown. 
five, four, three, two, one, and then we level wings and off we go. And we started from uh, the, the desert country. We've, we were towed out of, out of a municipal airport in LA over the San Gabriel up to the high desert country there where the soaring, of course, was good, we got organized and off we went. And we went right the way across the United States in a series of legs. The last leg of the formal uh, derby competition, if you will, was from La Trobe to Frederick. And then we had a ceremonial fly-in basically for the benefit of the media into no less than Dulles International Airport which is incredible. And we just spiraled down in the overhead and landed on the short takeoff and landing runway for all the media who were present in yeah, large numbers. And indeed, all the way across the States, there was tremendous media coverage. It was absolutely phenomenal from local newspapers, magazines, radio, a lot of television cameras. And each day, of course, was completely new terrain that I've never seen before, with all the changes from desert to rolling country to hilly country, uh, the, the soaring changing, of course, as, as well as we went across. And every evening we had a lovely social event. There'd be a local glider pilot who would host us at, at his place. The, the whole experience was magical, absolutely magical. I think the first Smirnoff was in 1972, I think. I flew 77. I believe there was one in 78, and I think it might have stopped after that. I have no idea why um, somebody at a high level in Smirnoff perhaps thought, you know, oh, we don't need this. But I, I, I was staggered at the degree of uh, publicity. The guy who was organizing it over in the States, coordinating the whole thing, when it was over, he sent um, each pilot photocopy of all the media coverage, and that's just print media. And this huge parcel arrived, and it, 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 it was staggering. So never mind the television side, but absolutely wonderful, wonderful experience. Pretty challenging for the crew, of course, as they went all the way by road, all the way across the US. How many legs were there, and how long did it take you to get across the country? Oh, gosh. Oh. Um, I'd have to look in my logbook for how many legs. It, of course, wasn't a straight line. It went, it went down a bit and then up and across. Um, I, I, I mean, off the top of my head, I can't remember the total number of legs. We did, of course, have one, one or two rest days. Usually, the weather played a part in that decision, and the whole thing would have been over. It, it was around about a, it was around about a two-week period. I, I guess, something of that order. I was flying at a pick. Pick 20, Pick 20B, and um, the other aircraft were fairly similar. Uh, Ingo Renner was flying in a, a, a 301 Labelle, which had, had all the, the Schumann mods on it, and that was, that was a pretty impressive machine. George Moffat was flying his, his Pick 20B. Um, Al Leffler was flying a Pick 20D, I seem to recall, and uh, Wally Scott was flying a 135. So you'd get up in the morning and plan for the flight. Tow plane takes you up to what? How many? How many feet? What was your tow? Yeah, just just normal air tow to a couple of thousand feet. We had two tow planes again from memory. You know, primary one and the other one was there as a backup, of course. And the one I flew in, we had Hannes Linke as our our director, if you like. He 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 was calling the operational shots. And it, it, it was fabulous, absolutely fabulous. It, it was a standout event for me, and it was it was great to meet uh, meet people like George Moffat at last. Yeah, that, that had to have been an amazing journey across the States, and beautiful, I'm sure. We always like to give our guests a chance to give a shout-out. I'm sure there was a lot of people influential in your soaring, and you've met a lot of people throughout the years in flying, but is there any thank yous you want to send out? Well, yes. <laughs> Of course, yes, I've had contacts. Uh, there have been a lot of people influencing me in my soaring career, soaring journey, as you put it. I guess I would certainly have to say the first one would be my my crew chief. Um, his name was Albert Albert Johnson, and he crewed for me. He, he was my crew chief for many British nationals. 
He was my crew chief in all the world championships that I flew in. We knew each other inside out, and he was 100% reliable. And for a world championships, that, that factor is extremely significant. I knew I could rely on him totally as far as the aircraft, the preparation. Everything would be absolutely spot on. The aircraft would be out in its place on the runway in time, and all I had to do was walk across and get in and get airborne. So I owe Albert an awful lot. Um, yeah, we've, we've gone through a lot together, that's for sure. I guess the number, uh, number two guy would indeed be George Moffat. Uh, I say that because when I first read uh, Winning on the Wind, it was an absolutely inspirational book for me. Uh, George is an English teacher, so he had tremendous writing skills with that. With that. And uh, that book really, really fired me up, I have to say. So he, he's an outstanding soaring pilot, a great writer, and really, yeah, raises, raises the passion, if you like. And the final person I would say would be Ingo Renner, just because I admire, I admire his extraordinary soaring ability, one of the finest soaring pilots there ever has been. Um, I, I think it's the Swedes that call him Mr. Gliding because he, he historically put in an amazing number of hours each year. I, I think he put in a thousand hours gliding each year and he's, he would split his time between down here in Australia, where his home, if you will, when the season changed, he would flop over to the Northern Hemisphere and fly, fly through the Northern Hemisphere summer. So he lived, breathed, and I guess slept gliding and had a, an outstanding ability, absolutely exceptional. Those are the three personalities. Chuck, in answer to your question. George, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us. I've really enjoyed your amazing stories. You've had an amazing journey of soaring. So thank you so much for sharing that here on the podcast. Okay, Chuck. No, my great pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Dale Masters joins us now for another Soaring Tale with Dale. This one's titled Ballad from Button Bay. Uh, one summer, we, we spent one day a week at a uh, very sleepy resort on the shore of Lake Champlain. And we'd tow all the way over there and give lots of rides with no lift at all and then tow back. It was a boring exercise, and I didn't really uh, enjoy it much, but that's what we did one day a week. One time, it was getting late in the season, so it's more like evening than late afternoon. We're headed home, and we're skirting a Class C airspace, and the tow pilot had a radio. Of course, I didn't, but uh, he was in contact with the tower, and then somehow, this airplane Cessna came right at us, straight out of that airspace, and he was going to T-bone us. He was going to actually cut the line between the tow plane and the glider. That's how how exact this was. And I saw him coming and I had time to watch and think, okay, how do I handle this? He's coming right at us. What do I do? If I tried to steer the tow away, well, then we could have a three plane collision with him behind us. And if I steered the other direction, we'd go toward him. And I realized, well, the best thing to do would just be wait the last moment and then pull up and let him have the line, release, and let him have the line, and then have to land out somewhere. But there was no obvious landing place anywhere nearby, and it was going to be evening soon. And as I continued to watch, it looked like, okay, he's, he's maybe going to miss us, and then he finally saw us. Just before I pulled up and released the rope, he saw us and banked away. So I did nothing. In the long run, I did nothing. And the tow pilot never knew we had this very near emergency. So we're continuing on home. And then we get into lots of lift, wave lift. And the tow pilot's speeding up to keep us down. And we got up around 80 on tow. And this, I figured, why bother with this? I just got off the tow. I'll ride the wave home. So as I climbed away in the wave, I looked down. And sure enough, the tow pilot was down there circling, looking for me. And because I didn't have a radio, he just 
he had to give up and go on home. And I uh, landed at dusk, and uh, he was out there waiting with folded arms, wanting to tell me all about why I shouldn't have done it that way. But as it turns out, I taught him to fly years earlier, and he could never stay mad at me very long. This soaring safety segment is brought to you by Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. Aerox, number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems. Your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable oxygen systems. Aerox now introduces the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. Small, lightweight, and simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. Aerox, engineered for aviators. Better and safer pilot number one is always be honest about everything. We can't pretend like we know it all. Uh, that's very difficult. But you make mistakes and you learn from them and you have to you can't be scared to ask advice from people that have more experience. There are always people that are more experienced that have experienced the same problems that you're facing. I mean, I'm quite a perfectionist and I recently I did a looping and um, I wasn't perfectly diving into the wind. So from the ground, it looked a little bit skew. It wasn't a perfectly straight looping and it ate me up. I was so frustrated and I thought, how can this happen? I thought I knew how to make perfect loopings and it was just a little bit skew and I talked to an instructor and he said hey this happens to the best of us this happens to all of us you learn from it sometimes the wind is different than you think at a certain altitude but the people that you look up to have experience and gone through the same as you have and that's that goes for any age I, I learn things from pilots that are younger than me I learn from pilots that are older than me so having an open discussion in aviation is the most important to be safe Thank you, Pilot Bambi. If you want to check out her entire chat with us, you can do that. It's episode 70. We now head to sunny Florida for our tips and techniques segment as we talk to Bruce Patton here on Soaring the Sky. First of all, the, normally what you hear a lot of people say is the club's less expensive. Um, and, and that's probably true. And I guess when I talk about that, also, let me let me say before we get, I get started on this, that these are my generalizations. They, they're probably not going to apply all across the the country, um, but it's kind of my thoughts on it and, and somewhat generalizations. When you talk about commercial operations, first of all, the commercial operations are very important for us in the soaring community. Uh, they serve pilots very well. For a fact, I remember when you talk about if you're traveling across the country and you want to go in and pop into some place and fly, that's that's an ex usually the commercial operations are the best place to do that. Um, I remember uh, years ago, actually, I, after I got my license, I had a, um, I was uh, traveling. Well, actually, before I got my my license, I was had a chance to go down to Phoenix, and went down there. And I wanted to. I went down a week a weekend early. I was there for business, so I went there a weekend early so I could drive up to the Grand Canyon. But I also found out that uh, Turf Soren at the time was down there, and they did aerobatic rides and gliders. It was perfect to be able to go in there and go to a commercial operation that does exactly that, serve um, somebody traveling in to do a, a, an aerobatic ride, which was phenomenal to do that. So that's that's a good example of of, of the commercial operations that are usually open every day of the week or, or most of the days of the week. Another time I traveled to Dallas and got to fly uh, with a commercial operation in Dallas. So that's that's definitely a, uh, a plus for the commercial operations. And again, with a commercial operation, they're probably going to operate almost every day of the week. There may be one or two days off, but still, it's going to work into a traveling person's schedule. And to your point, it gives you an awesome chance to get that experience that you don't have at your home airport. If there were just clubs across the, the country, you probably wouldn't be able to do that because they're going to say you got to join the club, you got to, or whatever the case may be. So that's why commercial operations serve us in the soaring community so well. And one of the other disadvantages that I, and again, this is probably the one that comes up the most, they're usually more expensive than clubs, but you got to consider all the expenses they have to run a business. And on the flip side of that, on a club, 
as a club member, you're being you need to do that type of work from mowing the lawn to actually, if you look at the treasury work, which happened, that's what I actually I'm the, the club treasurer right now. That's all volunteer work where these these businesses have to pay somebody to do that. They have to pay somebody to, to usually be a receptionist when you walk in the door, that sort of thing. So they have a lot of expenses that realistically clubs have too, but they're done by by people that are volunteering too. So that's why you got to understand that that the expenses there's there's a reason for that the expenses. Uh, another advantage of commercial operations, um, if if you're we have pilots that want to just come in and boom 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 get their uh, add-on rating or just a re- regular rating. There's definitely an advantage for a commercial operation there because. More, the t- more times than not, there's consistent training that they're able to schedule where usually you can't do that in clubs. Or you could do it, but like our club, our club flies weekends and Wednesdays. Uh, and so you can't fly if you say, okay, I've got a week off. I'm going to go in and try to bang out this add-on. It, it just doesn't happen in a club environment that way. So that's definitely another advantage for, for going to a commercial operation. I remember a few years back, I was the only instructor at our club. And quite frankly, I, I couldn't take on any more students. We're lucky enough to have Seminole Lake that's about, as a crow flies, about 26 miles from our club. But what we had to do at that time was if we had somebody, and unfortunately, we, we didn't have instructors. So at that time, if somebody was coming in, we would say, unfortunately, you know, we could take your money and let you join the club, but it's not going to be fair to you. So we at that time would actually send some folks over there to at least get started um, and be able to hopefully even solo and then come back over and join our club. So that really worked out for us with a commercial operation close to us to be able to do that sort of thing. And again, it's, it's even worse to think to, to let that person join the club and not, not be able to fly because there's not enough instructors available for them. So, so it, it, that's a good, a good situation where, because we have a commercial operation close, it worked out pretty well for us. Uh, speaking of that, some of the advantages of clubs, uh, and again, obviously the first thing that comes up is they're usually less expensive, but you got to understand they're less expensive because club members are doing a lot of the work. Uh, and that's then I throw that in, that's a disadvantage. All the club ma- members need to do their part to make the club successful. In most clubs, you are an owner of the business, not not a customer. So you really have to think that, that way, that you're an owner, and you've got to be thinking, or you don't want to think, what can the club do for me? But please, but think about what I can do for the club. And unfortunately, and it's it's usually a, a funny that the, kind of the 80-20 concept comes in. You'll a lot of time fly that you find out that 20% of the club members really get in there and work. And then there's 80% that do some work. Or, and then there's some at the other end that don't do hardly anything. Please don't be one of those members that just show up when the gliders get pulled out to the flight line, fly, and then leave before before the gliders get put away because one of your club members, one of your fellow members are there having to do all that work along with a lot of the other work, like talking about the mowing and all the other odds and ends around the club that has to be done. Just make sure that every you're thinking about that if you're a club member. Thank you for listening to another episode here on Soaring the Sky. If you want to follow us, you can do that on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook, and that is at Soaring the Sky Podcast. If you want to hear more Soaring Adventures, and you can't wait till our next episode. You can check all of them out on our website at SoaringTheSky.com or, of course, on your favorite podcast app. Stay healthy, stay safe, and until next time, happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at Chuck at SoaringTheSky.com or send us a message on our website at SoaringTheSky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.